This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure they're getting they're getting that food intake and anytime any chance you have to get them to eat fruits and vegetables, they should do that. Give them lean meats, give them whole grains, but don't worry about all the extra noise, organic or GMO or chemicals or any of that kind of stuff because you're just gonna drive yourself crazy. And you know, eventually if your kids get to the age where they want to focus on that stuff, then say, go for it, kids. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your life to the fullest. Today's show is completely aligned with health. It's called Kids, Active Commuting, and Long-Term Fitness with our guest, Robin DeWeese. Robin is a lecturer in the College of Health Solutions at Arizona State University. She earned her PhD from ASU and is also a registered dietitian nutritionist. Her research focuses on the impact food and physical activity environments have on children's health. She's been part of the research team for the New Jersey Child Health Study for the past 10 years, studying changes to the built environment over time. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start with telling us about your path to becoming a dietitian and a nutritionist. How, how did you get here? Well, that's kind of an odd story, actually. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I decided at some point in my life that I wanted to go back to school. I won't take you all the way back, but um, because I'd kind of always joked about my, my original uh, career path was a high school teacher and coach. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I did some, some church work after that. And then I decided I'd always joked that, you know, I was interested in so many things as many people are that I was just going to keep going back to school and just getting degrees, you know, and, um, doing different things. And at one point I just decided, you know what, I think I'm just going to go ahead and do that. And so I, I, um, got a, a second bachelor's in kinesiology and, and then a master's in exercise and wellness. And then I thought, well, you know, I've got the exercise part. I have to add the nutrition piece to that. And so, um, so I decided to get a, a PhD in, in nutrition and, and, uh, I got as part of that, I, um, got the registered dietitian nutritionist, uh, licensing also. So 
that's how I got to this point. <laughs> you are a scholar. Um, you are a well-educated scholar. And um, I, I mean, the combination of fitness and nutrition, right? They go, they, well, seemingly they go hand in hand. Do, do you find in the academic world, are they separate? You know, nutrition, diet, fitness, how does it all go together? Well, that's an interesting question, actually, because there there is more now, I would say, bringing together of various aspects of health. Um, you know, there's there's still those aspects of research where you keep you keep things separate because you want to, you know, try to, you know, find the exact mechanisms of what's working and what's doing what. But there's also this recognition that, you know, things don't happen in a vacuum, especially health. And so there's a lot more kind of awareness, I would say, of bringing together those various aspects. And yes, um, nutrition and physical activity are often two, two of those that, you know, are kind of brought together to see what their, their impact synergistically would be on health. How, how did the interest in environment come into the work for you? Well, for me, I mean, this, so I, you know, stand on the shoulders of many researchers who came before. I definitely came in after this was already recognized. But, you know, early on when, um, when weight outcomes started rising in the population, um, the research kind of focused on those individual aspects that I was talking about. So, you know, let's talk about how we can get people to eat healthier or how we can get them to exercise more or whatever, but it didn't really change any outcomes. And so researchers, you know, I think it was back around the mid eighties or so kind of started to think, you know, well, maybe the environment plays a role in this because if people aren't able to say access healthy food, or they don't have access to, you know, places to be physically active, we're asking them, we're telling them, these are the things you need to do to be healthy, but they don't necessarily have access to those things or the ability to do those. And so those researchers started looking around and saying, okay, well, let's look and see what, what's happening here in the built environment. And are there, you know, are there, are there sidewalks? Are there bike lanes? Are there um, supermarkets nearby people's houses? So they started, you know, doing more of that kind of research. And so I've continued on, you know, I, I just happened to um, be part of um, a study that started in New Jersey uh, some cities, a, f a few cities in New Jersey, um, wanted to do have some interventions in in the cities. They got some funding, and so um, Rutgers was asked to evaluate Rutgers University in New Jersey was asked to evaluate uh, the impact on health on children's health of those interventions. And um, so we had a, a one of my colleagues was at Rutgers, and then she came to ASU, and so I got to be part of that team. And we've been we've been studying that since since 2012. And what have you been finding? Well, we've actually find, found a lot of things. Um, so, you know, there's the act of commuting to school, for example, that we're, we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. um, but we've done a few different studies on that. And we, um, so one of the, our first cross-sectional studies about active commuting to school, we wanted to see what types of things are associated with whether or not kids do actively commute. And um, we, you know, there's, there's lots of different um, factors that, that can play a role. So, you know, in this study, we surveyed households, we surveyed parents of children, and we asked them, you know, questions about 
demographics and behaviors, food and physical activity behaviors. And so one of the questions that we asked was, how does your child normally um, commute to school? Do they do they walk? Do they bike? Do they skateboard? Um, do they take you know do they go go by car? And uh, and we had we had other aspects that we asked them about the environment. And one of the questions that we asked was about the pleasantness of the environment. So that was things like, um, you know, are there trees or is there lighting? Is there graffiti, um, abandoned buildings and things like that? And, you know, of course, traffic and crime and distance to school. And we found that actually we were kind of surprised to find that the pleasantness of the environment was um, what was most associated with whether or not kids in that particular study actively commuted. Um, <clears throat> we also, we wanted to look and see if it was, if active commuting was related to um, weight outcomes in kids. And we did find an association there that those who actively commuted um, at least a half mile to school uh, were more likely to be uh, were less likely, I'm sorry, less likely to be overweight or obese. Now, it it was a cross-sectional study, so we can't imply causality there, but it was an interesting finding mm-hmm. uh, anyway. Mm-hmm. And for for our listeners, active commuting, we define active commuting as uh, getting to school with your body, right? Like you, you could be more eloquent with it. How would you, what is the, what is the scientific definition of active? <laughs> the scientific definition, there's yeah. really, it's really just, we kind of define it as walk, bicycle, or skateboard, yeah. or, you know, basically yeah. you're self-powering yourself to school. So it can be anything that you're, you know, creating, using your own energy to get there, basically. <laughs> and so the desirability or the aesthetics of the environment did have an impact on depending on the community in terms of the percentage of kids that would actively commute. And is that meaning like danger, uh, only danger factors or really it's aesthetics? As in well? this case, it was actually aesthetics. And it's, this isn't the only study that's found aesthetics to, to have an impact, but yeah, it was, it was kind of a surprising finding um, because that was even, you know, we, in, like I said, we, in, we included crime and traffic also in, in the mm-hmm. model and um, pleasantness though, or aesthetics kind of mm-hmm. over, overruled it. <laughs> Interesting. Well, enough. And back to uh, something you were previously saying um, in terms of the focus for so long uh, in many um, aspects of the behavioral health field are on the individual. And it seems like the context is gaining more and more, um, gaining more and more attention. And to your point, what my knowledge of some of these studies show is particularly in many low income areas, there are not supermarkets, there are not parks, there are not sidewalks, there are not all the things that one needs for health and fitness. Yeah, there's definitely there are definitely disparities in those aspects between lower and higher income um, income communities, um, and you know we talk about I'm sure you've and everybody's heard of the term food desert, and even that isn't a um, like an objective measure because it really depends. You know, like for example, I'm, I live here in Arizona in the Phoenix area, and um, it's a pretty spread out city. Mm-hmm. And some of the actually the, the higher income communities are more spread out and you would, you know, they may have supermarkets farther away from their, their homes, but they have act, act um, access to cars, you know, transportation. Mm-hmm. But transportation has plays a big role in, you know, access to supermarkets. So it's not always just the distance to the supermarket. It's whether, um, whether, 
uh, residents have access to transportation and, and even, you know, um, not even necessarily just a lack of access. Sometimes it's, they, they tend to have sometimes greater access to those kinds of stores that you think of with less healthy foods, like some of those smaller, you know, we call them corner stores or mm-hmm. convenience mm-hmm. stores kind of depends on what area of the country you're in. Um, those places where they, they have really very ready access and, but not, not much healthy foods in those stores. So that can be an issue too. In this most recent study on active commuting, 11%, you stated 11% of kids in the U.S. walk or ride their bike to or from school. Um, and that was, that's based on, sorry, so that's based on the National Household Travel Survey. Is that, that seems small to me. And, and I don't know if that, that trend has, has gotten smaller over time. It has. It's decreased. It was it was almost fifty percent in nineteen sixty nine. That's the earliest I've seen for that statistic. Um, and yeah, it's definitely decreased over time. And and some of that may have to do with uh, building schools more. You know, at schools aren't as much embedded within neighborhoods. Of course, that also depends on um, what city you're talking about. But there can be a tendency in some cities to want to, you know, build bigger schools and put them more kind of on the outskirts of town. So there's greater land area, which seems like a good idea, but they can be less accessible to kids walking Mm -hmm. to them. Besides the fact that, you know, there's some, there's school choice and, and kids don't necessarily, or parents don't necessarily uh, send their kids to the school that's closest to them. So all of those things come into play there with that decrease over time. So what in this study, what did you find about active commuting? What were the, what were the big take-home messages? Well, the biggest take-home message was really uh, it has to do with our kind of overall behavior in general because we just found that, you know, very simply, those kids who, um, who walked, I'm just going to say walked instead of active commuting, <laughs> walked at one point in time, continued that behavior at the second time point, this was a longitudinal study where we looked, you know, at a set of kids and then we looked, um, a few years later and, uh, and yeah, just the, the likelihood of continuing that behavior over time was really high. Um, so we, you know, we think that really says a lot about starting those behaviors early in life, those healthy behaviors early in life. I believe 75% you found of kids who started, um, active commuting or walking continue two to four years later. And conversely, very few people who hadn't been doing that at the beginning of the study took that up. So it's, it's right. like one of these things that if you start, there's momentum, but if you don't, you miss a pretty important window. Yeah, it, it kind of seems that way. And there is other research out there, you know, just talking about behaviors and, um, how, um, you know, starting those early can, can cause them to continue later on. So how does something as seemingly as simple as walking to school or riding your bike or skating, um, impact long-term fitness? What do, what do we know about that? Well, fitness, if you, if you're just speaking just strictly about fitness, um, the commute to school doesn't necessarily affect fitness levels. Um, there is, there is some research that possibly bicycling does walking doesn't. Um, it's more about getting, making that behavior habitual so that 
so that just physical activity becomes habitual. Mm. And we know that physical activity, depending on the type that you're doing, does improve fitness. And so, um, you know, if a, if a person gets in that habit early in life, um, if they're, you know, if they're going to continue that later, then that, you know, is going to improve their fitness as they, as they continue to exercise. In terms of cultivating this early on, what, what part is parents? What part is school? What part is community? You know, how do, how do we, how do we cultivate these healthy habits and educate about them? Yeah, it all plays, it all plays a role. And as, as you know, specific to active commuting, um, you know, one of the things that can be done and, and, um, there's an interesting qualitative study on this actually on, on remote drop-offs. Um, this study, uh, found, you know, a few different schools that are doing this remote drop-offs would just be where, you know, rather than, uh, parents driving up to the school or buses driving right up to the school that a spot or spots around the school are chosen, you know, a half mile to a mile away from the school. And that's, those would be where the, where the drop-off places would be for the kids. And then you could do, you know, either walking school buses, which those are just, you know, you get an adult and you have the group of kids and you walk in a line and you can make school bus noises, I guess, if you want to. But, um, and you know, they walk, so that that would help with this, with the safety and you find, you know, good routes that are safe to get to school. Um, but so that's just one example. And that would take, that takes really everybody, right? Because you need, you need to have parent buy-in to, you know, mm-hmm. and you have to educate them and explain, hey, here's what we're going to do. This is going to alleviate traffic congestion and your irritation with standing in those parent pickup lines, you know. Um, but it's also going to give you an opportunity, give your kids an opportunity to have that physical activity. It could also, you know, help parents have physical activity too if they, you know, are volunteers and they help to walk. But you also have to have, you know, you have to have some community partners, um, whoever, you know, whoever that, that may be members of the, um, community that work for the city or even those who, um, maybe, uh, own parking lots or whatever that are, that are close by. Um, and then of course, you know, the school, the school administrators and people themselves to, um, either get the word out or just kind of, you know, be on board, but you do want it to be, you want to spread it out because you don't want to put all of this on, um, you know, we already expect teachers and school administrators to do Mm -hmm. so many things. Mm -hmm. And so we don't want to, um, you know, be adding just another thing to them. So we do want this to be, a you know, like a community effort and kind of to, to realize that this is the health we're talking about the future of the future health of our communities, because these are the kids that are going to grow up. Um, and this is just one way to improve their health, to prove, improve even, you know, their, their cognition in school. Um, and it could have a, a really big impact, but also, you know, also just making sure that, um, the area around schools is safe. So, you know, traffic patterns and crosswalks and, um, traffic or crossing guards and just all of that, mm-hmm. all of that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So it takes a variety of, you know, different people to make this stuff happen. And, and I don't, I should mention here, Safe Routes to School is an organization that does a mm-hmm. lot of work in this area. And, um, they've been a, they've been a, they do a great job. It's, um, like most things, it's multifaceted, 
right? Mm -hmm. uh, multiple stakeholders. And um, I'm just always, uh, I don't know if impressed is the right word, just um, reminded about the important function of city planning, mm -hmm. uh, right? And it's like, we don't think about it. Well, most people don't think about it that way. And I, I recall one of my favorite classes in my undergraduate was environmental psychology um, in the 80s. And I thought it was so fascinating how we were studying, we're looking at studies where um, hospital rooms had regular lights or lights of clouds or, you know, plants in them or how um, water features made an impact in different communities. And so much of our health is a feedback loop with the environment that we're living in. Yeah, it really is. It's, um, it's crazy. You never, you know, I would have never before thinking through these things, I wouldn't have thought of city planners as having anything to do with health at all, but you're right. They play a huge role. And, um, you know, I, I, I would almost say, they play almost as large a role as, you know, some, some health practitioners. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's unfortunate that when we got this sort of got started with our cities, that so many of them are, are so car centric. I mean, I know there mm -hmm. are, there are cities that are better, but, you know, again, being from Phoenix, it's just this hugely spread out city and it's very car centric and you kind of feel like you're taking your life in your hands when you, you know, ride your bike. Um, so it's, you know, I, I'm always impressed, impressed with city planners who kind of like retroactively or sort of retrofit the cities that have been, you know, focused on cars so much and they can do their magic and turn, you know, turn a regular street into a complete street and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. So uh, mm -hmm. we, we need, we need those kind of city planners that have the, that are interested in, in, you know, creating healthy communities. Absolutely. So distilling this research um, into one of these most important parts, just to reiterate, is if we can make walking or being active, actively commuting to school a regular part of the week, once, twice, a couple days a week at a young age, it is a physical activity habit that sticks and has long-term positive ramifications. And conversely, Kids who don't, for a variety of reasons, we just don't know where that's going to go. I mean, a lot of these other kids could be in sports. They could be at after, uh, boys and girls clubs and um, at the Y. But we're there's no guarantee for this substitution. Yeah, I mean, I do want to emphasize this is just, you know, just one area of the country. Mm -hmm. and um, And yeah, we did only look at... Uh, we didn't include things like, you know, are you involved in after-school activities or those kinds of things. So we can't, you know, um, we can't make any definitive conclusions, but we do know that any kind of activity, any kind of safe activity <laughs> mm -hmm. is, is healthy. Um, and so um, it, it just every chance, I don't know, I would just say that every chance we get to make that more possible for kids we should we should take that chance, you know, mm -hmm. every mm -hmm. every every chance we get. And I I imagine again you living in a um, a warmer climate. I know there's studies um, out of Rutgers where it's um, those surrounding areas are colder. I'm guessing there you've got to be dealing with weather and climate 
um, in some of these places that have several months of very cold weather and, and, and ways to work around that? Yeah. I mean, I would say both. I would say both the heat and the cold, um, they, those are always interesting things to deal with. It's, it was interesting in our study. Um, sometimes we do, we kind of, you know, control for the month that the, that the, um, the survey is given to, you know, look at how weather impacts it. But it is interesting that, you know, with human behavior, so we, we have, you know, there's the saying, we want to make the healthy choice, the easy choice. And sometimes I change that to not the healthy choice, not necessarily the easy choice, but almost the brainless choice. Mm-hmm, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. more about, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to think about it. You just, you just do it. And so I would say that's where that comes into play with kind of that, you know, walking and weather thing that if you are in the habit of doing this, that it's just a thing that you do. You don't even think about it. You just do it. And, you know, if you live in a cold climate, it's like, okay, well, I have to put on a thicker coat. And if you live in a warmer climate, you go, well, you can only take off so many clothes, but, you know, maybe you you know, carry an umbrella or whatever. Um, but it's, it's, excuse me, it's that idea that just making that kind of your default, this is just what I do. Mm -hmm. And here are some things I need to do to adapt. And unless there's, you know, a, a, what's that called? Snow NATO, you know, walk anyway. Were there other, any surprising findings or Um, unexpected findings? Actually, yes. In this particular study, I mean, because in general, we tend to, we tend to see that um, those who are not, who, who didn't grow up in the U.S. tend to uh, actively commute more. In this particular study, we found the opposite. Um, But, you know, uh, it could have been for a variety of reasons. It was, it was somewhat surprising, mm. but, um, one of the things that's, that's, um, not super surprising has to do with age. And there's kind of a, there's kind of a, a happy point sort of for commuting in, you know, in certain ages. Cause once kids get to that, you know, over about 16 or so where they have access to cars, um, it becomes a little less cool maybe to, to walk. So mm-hmm. age mm-hmm. does play a role in this. And if, you know, if kids are really young, then parents are a little more hesitant to have them mm-hmm. uh, walk mm-hmm. on their own. Yeah. You know, this reminds me of, um, one of our kids just got back from traveling overseas and she was, she's, they were walking 12, let's say average 12 miles a day and loved it. And she came home and she said, you know, I just realized we live so close to town why do I always drive to town? Like, I don't even think about walking to town and here it's so close. And I think it's always about these habits and these mindsets that first of all, I do think families cultivate intentionally or unintentionally, right? Some families do walk to town, do walk to the market. Uh, Other families are always driving. And I think as I'm talking, it just, it just seems important for us to be mindful about the healthy habits and choices that we can make, even to your point, if it's not the easy one, but maybe it's the 
It's the healthier one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it really does come back to that. Once you, I mean, we've all experienced that, you know, that something that we, we want to start doing that's healthier. Um, and it's, and it doesn't even matter, you know, I'm, I'm into health, all, all kinds of into health, but you know, every once in a while there can be a little speed bump somewhere that's just a little bit different than what you normally experience. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to kind of kind of interrupt that flow. And so if you've got that habit established, um, it's just going to be that much easier to to continue it. And, I, you know, it's it's as it's you, you go as far as you know, I, I've, I don't know if you've ever done this. There have been times where I, um, I jumped in my car and I'm driving away and I go, you know what? I, I had planned to ride my bike and I just <laughs> forgot. I just, you know, it was the habit to just jump in my car. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I, you know, when I say kind of making that healthy choice, sort of the, the brainless choice. So you don't have to think through every little step because our brains can't handle, you know, all of those things. We can't, mm-hmm you know, think through every single thing. No, we have a lot coming at us these days. Um, and so the more we can make things habits, um, in our family, when our kids were younger with the extended family was the Sunday walk to the farmer's market. It was, that was just a, a regular thing. And I think the more we can get ourselves into these habits, get our kids into these habits, like the study shows, you just continue them because it's, it's, it's normal. It just feels normal and regular. Um, this 60 minute thing. So what is the 60 minute thing? The 60 minute thing is kids are supposed to get about 60 minutes of exercise activity every day, right? Something like that. Yes. Yeah. 60 minutes. Yeah. 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity. Yeah. So I don't know if you know this statistic or you can give a, make a guess. What percent of kids do you, do you think actually achieve that in, in our country, the way, the way daily life is the way PE has been, uh, often is an afterthought in some budgetary, you know, cuts, um, in, in certain states and districts. Yes. I actually have this in front of me right now. Oh, excellent. People, we did not plan this. This was not <laughs> scripted. I just happen to have this pulled up right now. Um, well, all I can see right now is 81% of adolescents, 11 to 17 years old, are insufficiently physically active globally. So Whoa. that's that, just one particular stat. So that's pretty. That's pre- a pretty low amount of uh, you know kids who are getting sufficient physical activity. So it's not very high. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. There's there's lots of different factors that go into you know physical activity or for or physical education. I mean. Um, did get cut in a lot of schools and even a recess for a while there. And I think mm-hmm. we're, we're starting to kind of realize and understand the role that those things play in education. And so um, lots of schools have added those back in and actually made them requirements. But, um, but I think we can still, you know, I, I just think there does need to be a recognition that physical activity isn't just an extra thing. It's not just a thing that you, you know, you can give, you can do it or you can not do it, especially with, you know, kids that are school age kids and, you know, that used to be, and probably still is in some places, um, removing recess 
as a punishment or you didn't get your work done. You have to stay inside. You can't go out to recess. But I think that thankfully there is some more, there, some recognition that, you know, if you take those, if you take those opportunities to be active from kids, um, there's going to be, you know, more issues in the classroom, mm-hmm. even if it's just with cognition, but, you know, behavior issues. And um, so we definitely, we definitely don't want to take activity away from kids and we want to encourage that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. whenever that's appropriate. I'm thinking back about, I don't know, maybe 15 years. Um, Dr. John Rady, uh, he spark, I believe he wrote the book spark. Have you, are you familiar with that piece of work? Um, so I might be, uh, I might be butchering this a little bit, but basically it, it was his research and study of how exercise impacted all the aspects of, of, uh, cognition, of health, of behavior, um, mental health. And, uh, to the point that schools that were adopting this program were showing incredible rises in test scores, in a, in attendance, um, in increase in mental health and reduction of all the negative stuff, um, all because of increased exercise as part of the school curriculum. So just to echo what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting, I haven't seen, um, I haven't uh, specifically looked at those kind of cognitive studies that look at, you know, those Mm -hmm. kind of grade results and things, but yeah, it's, um, that's, that's an impressive result. (laughs) So where is, so this research tell, tell, so give us a little, uh, a little more of what you're finding with your, um, with your research group and some of the other studies you're doing as it relates to health and wellness. Yeah. So I'll tell you a little, I'm not sure how well I explained the study itself, but you know, we just, um, we do household surveys where we, um, it's just, it's only households that have, have children and we talk to a parent and we ask them, you know, questions about themselves and their and their children. And so we have all this data, you know, that stretches from 2012 through um, it's, it's still going, actually. And we also we do some research in the schools close by too, or in the in the cities also. Um, so we've got we've got research where we look at the effect of, um, you know, the food environment and we found some effects of, of convenience stores um, close by uh, households being associated with higher risks of overweight and obesity. Um, we've, um, we've also, we actually just did a study that, um, where we looked, uh, it was another active commuting school, or uh, sorry, another active commuting uh, study where we were looking at how the food environment affects, you know, weight outcomes. And we found that if, you know, um, some of those convenience stores are near where kids live, that even if they, you know, if they actively commute, then that's going to be negatively associated with their, with their weight outcomes. Um, let's see, what else have we done? We've, we've done a lot of them, um, a lot of studies. Um, Let me clarify something you just said there. So even if someone is actively commuting, doing the regular uh, walking, biking to school, if they're if there is a convenience store or a number of convenience stores uh, close by in the community, it can negate the positive impact of the active commuting. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And, okay. and um, so, yeah, we, we just found that 
only with the with the kids who actually did actively commute, we didn't find a negative effect of not actively commuting, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what should, let's break this down. Like, So what should parents be thinking about when it comes to, well, this other whole world that you live in, nutrition? Like what, what should, in this, in this very fast paced world with GMOs and fast food and conversely organic foods and there's vegan and there's vegetarian and there's all these things that are out there as possibilities. If we were going to make it brainless, you know, like you say, like, how do we make this simple for parents and what to think about for fostering health? Well, the first thing I would say is to not get uh, nutrition or health advice from uh, Instagram influencers. <laughs> <laughs> there is just so much information just coming from all over the place um, on social media. And so I would say just shut that off. Mm-hmm. Don't look at that because you're going to, you're going to, there's so many parents. I mean, I'm not a parent, but I've heard enough parents and I have parents, (laughs) Mm -hmm. as most people do. Mm -hmm. Um, Parents already experience plenty of guilt. They always think that what they're doing is wrong. They're going to ruin their kids. Um, So the first thing I would say is just stop listening to all of the outside noise Mm -hmm. and find somebody who you know to be an expert in a certain area, say nutrition, um, find out what their credentials are, find out what they've studied and how long they've studied it. And, um, you know, if they just, you know, got a, got an online certificate or if they actually, you know, went through a real program, um, and pay attention to them. And then, you know, it's, it's just in a, in an active, healthy child, um, that's, you know, doesn't have disorders or diseases. There are some conditions that, that, you know, are, are a little bit different than what I'm going to say, but in just a, a, a disease-free child, um, just simplify it and don't overthink it. And don't think that you have to have all of the latest fad, put your, put your kid on a fad diet or anything like that, you know, just, um, Make sure they're eating. <laughs> Make sure they're getting they're getting that food intake. And anytime any chance you have to get them to eat fruits and vegetables, they should do that. If you have to hide those, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, give them lean meats, give them whole grains, but don't worry about all the extra noise of all of the, you know, organic or GMO or chemicals or any of that kind of stuff ah. because you're just going to drive yourself crazy. Um, Hmm. And, you know, eventually if your kids get to the age where they want to focus on that stuff, then say, go for it, kids. <laughs> so Robin, so you're saying just keep it simple, like keep it simple, like go back to the basics. Don't overthink it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, and, and you, it's it's almost dangerous to say that online now because you get all those people that want to complicate it and. And they will argue with you vehemently that that's terrible and you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be saying this or promoting this. Um, but, you know, I would just say, look at the research out there and then, and then, mm-hmm. um, you know, use that. I have to ask you about fast food 
um, which I know is highly variable um, from McDonald's to Chick-fil-A to Taco Bell to um, out here, um, just various things. Um, what, uh, what do you say about fast food? Well, I mean, it, it shouldn't be your, a regular part of your diet. It shouldn't be like the, the foundation of your diet. Um, everything is fine in moderation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, there are health professionals who demonize any kind of unhealthy food at all. So all fast food is, is demonized. You are a bad person if you ever give your kids fast food. Um, that's unreasonable. I mean, there are families who just, you know, the, the parents are working three different jobs and they've got, you know, four kids that are going in, in lots of different directions. And every once in a while, fast food is the only way they're going to be able to get calories into their kids. Like I said, it shouldn't be a staple of the diet. It shouldn't be a regular part of the diet, but if it happens every once in a while, parents shouldn't, you know, freak out, think they're, they're bad parents. And there are some healthier um, options at, uh, you know, fast food restaurants. And so you can always, mm-hmm. you know, try to find the, the healthier options. But I would just say, you know, in general, everything in moderation, but as much as you can, you know, don't, don't eat out. Try to, try to get those foods in your home because those are going to be healthier than what you're going to find in a fast food restaurant. Mm-hmm. I, your, your, your approach is very calming to me and I'm sure to those listening, which is, um, like, let's just simplify. Let's get kids walking and riding their bikes and, and running and skateboarding, exercising and, preferably when they're young, make it part of their day, their school day, uh, to school, home from school. And especially for those parents who are able to walk to and from school with their kids when their kids are young. Um, I'm having a flashback of walking to elementary school, um, a few days a week, not every day. It was the hills seem kind of big on the way back. Um, uphill both ways in the snow, in the snow. Um, <laughs> But they're good memories. They're, I mean, they're good memories. I felt accomplished having walked to school um, back then. So get our kids moving. When it comes to diet, keep it simple again. Like you need some, have some lean, lean meats, um, fruits, vegetables, grains, and um, fast food is part of life, part, part of life for many um, busy households. And it's going to happen. Don't overthink it. Uh, keep it in moderation. And then even when you are at fast foods, we can educate our kids about on the menus. Like there are some things that are more and less healthy, even within these um, establishments. Yeah. I think that's actually an important point that you made at the end that I, it, it is important because kids live in society. And so they're going to be exposed to that stuff. And if we just, if they don't know how to handle it, you know, maybe they go to, McDonald's after a game, you know, and they've never even been to a fast food place, then they're not going to have any idea how to handle that situation. You know, they're not going to know that maybe you should look on the menu for some things that might be a little bit healthier, um, (laughs) or maybe not get, you know, the ginormous fries or whatever. Um, but I think there can be some teaching opportunities from that as long as you're not, you know, overdoing it. (laughs) Right. And, and, 
how important it is for parents to educate their kids rather than control, right? Because if we control without teaching, we're not, we're not cultivating any habits with certain types of thinking, right? So I think a lot of times it's like, no, you can't have that. You're going to have this. That's not good for you. We're going to do this. And again, that comes from a really good intention. But when we think about our kids growing up to be consumers of everything, consumers of media, consumers of advertisement, consumers of food, we really want to explain to them the choices that are out there. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. And I would say that um, you can listen to me because I'm the perfect parent because I've never ruined any children since I don't have <laughs> any. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I always say that, um, you know, I, in theory, that sounds great to me. But because I don't have kids, I, you know, don't take it for me as far as that goes or any kind of child psychology. But um, but yeah, okay. I agree with that. Okay, but you are a professor, you are you are a researcher, you are a nutritionist and a dietitian. And conceptually, we're saying... This sounds pretty good conceptually, right? It does. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. That sounds good to me. <laughs> yes. Okay. So speaking of um, parenting and not parenting, we still have the parent footprint moment question because the wonderful thing about this question is one does not have to be a parent to answer it to give us your wisdom. So here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual or having an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life and or those you love? Well, this is a really interesting question, and I, and I kind of like the way you ask it because you leave it very open, open to interpretation. So my interpretation may be sort of weird um, because I would say that my awareness um, of myself as a person, maybe didn't really happen until I was like a full grown adult, like in my early thirties, um, mm -hmm. only because of the way I, I grew up. I grew up in a, in a, um, household where we didn't do a lot of things. So we, you know, we were supposed to be separate from things. And so we didn't dance or listen to certain types of music or play cards or use dice or listen to, oh, I think I already said that one. Um, mm -hmm. So there were a lot of things that we didn't do. So I always sort of felt like I was separate from humanity, kind of, mm. um, kind of it, the way you might think of there's when a, a movie is being made, you have the actors and they're in the movie and then you have the people behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of the behind the scenes. I wasn't really part of the movie. I was just sort of back in the back. Um, and then, you know, I, I couldn't say that a specific thing happened kind of in my early thirties. It was a result of multiple, you know, friendships and, and experiences and things where I, kind of realized, you know, I really can be part of the regular people and part of humanity. And I don't have to be, you know, kind of separate from this. And it, and it gave me um, much greater empathy for people and much greater involvement with people where I could actually have, you know, real discussions with them as part of, of life as part of experiencing the same kinds of life that they were experiencing. And, um, so, I mean, you know, I think about this as it, as it relates to, you know, parenting and, and if I could talk to parents who I know there's still parents who kind of parent that exact same way. And mm -hmm. it would be a long conversation because these are these are firmly held beliefs. And so you can't tell parents, hey, you shouldn't do that because mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you don't want your kids to feel like this. But I think there is a conversation to be had there to say there's kind of a, an even uh, um an evenness there rather than going, you know, all one way, maybe 
emphasizing, you mm-hmm. know, you, you still want to um, like be involved in people's lives and um, mm-hmm. so you can kind of understand where they're coming from. So I don't know. Yeah. That's kind of yeah. I, it's making me think it relates to what we've been talking about and what you research in terms of built environments, like the family environment becomes a built environment with values and behaviors which are quote normal to kids growing up in them and we don't know any different until we get out of that built environment and have other experiences um we just don't know yeah absolutely it's like that story it's a it's a little joke sort of there's these two fish swimming along and they see this other fish and the other fish says good morning guys how's the water and and they swim on a little ways, and the one fish looks at the other one and goes, "What's water?" You know, <laughs> exactly. All around them, they don't even notice it. They don't even know what it is. Yes, yes. Well, Robin, thank you for sharing uh, your experience with us, and for your research and your continued research. These things sound so simple. I think you have a way of making things sound simple, which I think is one of your um, special talents, and. And yet they're so important. They're so important for our kids' health and longevity and the health of communities. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be on your your podcast. I um, really appreciate it and the chance to to talk about this stuff because I do think it's it's important and it's interesting. And, and um, I think it's great that you're getting this word out to parents. Where can people learn more about this topic and your research and your team's research? Um, well, hmm, that's a good question. Um, there, we actually do have a website. Um, asufoodpolicy.org shows a lot of the uh, research that we do. Okay. Repeat one more time, please. asufoodpolicy.org. There you go. There you go. And uh, ASU is a phenomenal institution that puts out tons of phenomenal research. Um, Yes, there are a lot of researchers at ASU. Yes. Well, everyone, that concludes the show for today. And I don't know about you, but I am going to be thinking about actively commuting wherever I go. Um, Can I walk? Can I ride? Can't, what can I do to move a little more and how can we instill that in our young generation? Earlier, the better. Thanks for listening. We love your five-star reviews. We appreciate you being part of our community. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. 
Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.